Hello, and welcome to the news meeting. This is the podcast where we bring you into the newsroom to hear the arguments that happen in meetings just like this every day. Three journalists are going to pitch their top story of the week to me, and together we're going to try and make sense of what the story actually is, whether it matters, why it matters, and then which one of those stories should lead the news. I'm James Harding. I'm the editor of Tortoise. I used to be the editor of the Times newspaper and the director of BBC News, so my job is to try to make a judgment about what the running order should be. From Podimo and Tortoise, welcome to the news meeting. It's good to be back here, and before doing anything else, I just want to say a big heartfelt thank you to Ed Balls and Adam Bolton, who've guest edited for the past couple of weeks. If you missed those episodes, do listen back to them. Uh, In each case, both Ed and Adam offer a different perspective on the news from mine. But the same format applies this week. As ever, I'm joined by three journalists. Kat Nealon is here. She's Tortoise's political editor, and she is in the throes of her latest investigation, which is about Boris Johnson's money. It's one of those scandals in plain sight, isn't it? It's called The Six Million Pound Man. That's right. Dave Taylor is an editor here. We work together at the Times newspaper. He was also uh, worked for The Guardian. Welcome back, Dave. Thanks, James. And Alexi Mostras, who is the head of investigations at Tortoise and has done the Sweet Bobby po- podcast, uh, has done the Hoax podcast. Uh, we hope you have equally good stories to suggest for us here at the news meeting. Welcome, Alexi. Hi, James. In a moment, we'll hear their pitches. But before we do that, here's a quick reminder of some of the stories from the past week. I swear by Almighty God that the evidence I shall give for this committee should be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. We begin with moves to stabilize the global financial system, including engineering a major deal to take over banking giant Credit Suisse. My contention is banking should be boring, a lot like watching paint dry, and anytime it's not, you got a problem. At the time, I thought we were working. There is, without doubt, a discriminatory culture right across the Metropolitan Police. The cost of living has risen again. The International Criminal Court has issued an arrest warrant for Russia's Vladimir Putin. People who say that we were partying in lockdown simply do not know what they are talking about. Right. Alexi, Dave, Cat. What's the story that you think mattered most this week? Why don't you give it to me, long story short, in a sentence, Cat? The greased piglets, goose is cooked. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> it's like Christmas has come early. <laughs> Dave. Fixing the unfixable. Alexi. 12 years in Hampstead. All right, let's look at each of those stories in more detail. Cat, what did you say it was? The greased piglet's goose is cooked. Yes. So uh, the greased piglet is the somewhat unflattering nickname that people give to Boris Johnson. Um, and the reason why I'm saying his goose is cooked is because I think what we saw over the course of uh, a day in Westminster um, where he was up against the Privileges Committee, but not just then, in other things that were happening in and around Westminster at the time, I think we saw, if not the end, then the beginning of the end of his ambitions to return as Prime Minister. That's a big call. The The assumption has been that if the Conservatives do very badly in the May local elections, Boris Johnson might stage a comeback then. Has that, has that talk receded since the start of the year? 
It certainly has. And I think uh, there are a few uh, reasons for that. Um, One is I think it rested originally on him being able to broaden out his appeal from the sort of core supporters who have always backed him. And I think what we saw with the uh, vote, the the putative rebellion against uh, Rishi Sunak's uh, new Brexit deal, the Windsor framework, um, only 22 people rebelled and they were largely people actually who were in Liz Truss's team, you know, yes. so Liz Truss, um, uh, Jake Berry and and some of the ERG, the kind of Brexiteer Spartans. Um, and of course, we've seen also this kind of fracturing with Steve Baker, who is now a minister, who was the chair of the ERG and arguably the person that kind of made them the force to be reckoned with. Um, not only uh, not standing by them, but being ejected from the WhatsApp group that he created. So, And Suella Braverman, likewise, also now a minister, the Home Secretary. Um, so two of the kind of big stars of the, the ERG era when it was a real fighting force against Theresa May, no longer doing that work. So the, the rebellion, such as it was, was only 22 people. And that gives us a real sense of, of where... MPs are thinking and and they are not thinking this is a man they want to support when it comes to Boris Johnson. And and can I ask you, was this one of those classic days in Westminster Wednesday when the drama was in one place but the action was in another? You know, I'm really interested that actually you kick off by saying, oh, the headline is the Grease Piglet, the headline is Boris Johnson. But immediately when you get to the substance, what you're really talking about is the scale of Rishi Sunak's victory in pushing his Brexit deal through. And I guess... The question I've got really is whether or not what we saw this week was the end of the Brexit psychodrama and something more normal in terms of not just Westminster politics, but Conservative Party politics too. I would like to think that we're there, but I'm not sure we're quite there yet. what, 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 What sparks it up again? I think it will probably go into abeyance. I think it will be like a hibernation period. Um, I mean, what people were saying to me sort of late last year was um, basically there's there's a few months to go before the locals. After the locals, we will unite behind one candidate because we're not stupid. We know there's an election coming and we know that if we're fighting like rats in a sack in the run-up to a general, that's terrible. That obviously just, you know, will be toast. So there is this kind of, um, you know, self-interest that they will start to um, suddenly you know their interests will align behind Rishi Sunak they'll suddenly think he's the best thing since sliced toast and you know all of the sort of naysayers will just stop saying nay for now and you know we've discussed before um, how soft the polling lead that Keir Starmer has is Um, if you have things like you know the budget there was a bit of grumbling around it but it was okay and actually you can see from the sort of reaction that Labour had where really the only thing that they picked up on was this pensions um, cap Mm. being lifted I mean that's not a vote winner right that's that's small technical stuff that people are going to be like yeah kind of annoyed about that doesn't win win an election so, so they did. They did quite well with the budget. Childcare offering was good, and I think has has done quite a lot to sort of start sort of winning over some of the sort of you know hard pushed pressed parents. That mm. you know, kind of that was one big issue. Um, there will be, I think, more like that. The sense that the grown ups are in the room and kind of, you know, 
the, the economy is the big thing that needs to be addressed. Hmm. Um, but Kat, okay, let's just turn then to the Boris Johnson performance yeah. in front of the select committee. Did anything happen in that committee room? Was yeah. there a moment where you thought, Boris Johnson, you're done? So I think the questions that Bernard Jenkin are asked and also Alberta Costa were the most salient and there they it seemed to me they were building a case that he had recklessly misled parliament by not sufficiently ascertaining what um, whether rules or guidance had been broken by not um, treating right. it with the, with the sort of appropriate uh, due uh, rigor that they expected um, and and sort of showing him up for you know the sort of man that we've been exploring in our podcast series who is not a details man quite careless and ultimately reckless with the truth in this instance and with finances and whatever in, in others Dave what did you think of the latest episode of the Johnson show yeah I really like the fact that he reveals his true character when he's under the most pressure and so you see him in a room like that and he's tetchy and he's petulant and he's self-regarding and he's he's not even trying to crack his jokes or lay out his expensive education he's just Cross. grumpy and and revealing himself to us all um so i like that about it i thought it was instructive and i also like the fact that his defence seemed to be was some bloke who used to work for the Daily Mail told me it was fine and another bloke who used to work for the Daily Mail also told me it was fine. <laughs> but is that really it? Is that what you've got? It's the bombshell um, defence. Well, Alexia, I realise you have a new puppy so you have no capacity to concentrate on anything but what, in what remains of your mind Yes. What, what do you think of this story? Are you one of those people who thinks this is just, just more kind of political drama over there and it doesn't count for much? I mean, does it appeal to you in, in that sense as a story? I, th I think it does kind of appeal to me because I really, really don't want to have Boris Johnson in uh, the public domain anymore. <laughs> and it's almost like he's almost out of the door, but not quite. Right. Yeah. And so I just want to see the event that kind of slams the door for good. Right. So this is a kind and of get your coat I think that's a moment. view shared by a lot of Conservative MPs, actually. Really? Uh, yeah, a lot of Conservative... So obviously not his supporters, but there, there is a, a, a sort of fairly sizable chunk of Tory MPs who recognise the damage that he is doing to their brand, yeah. the Conservative Party brand, and to their chances at the election. And so as far as they're concerned, they can't get rid of him quick enough. They want him to go quietly, not I mean, in a blaze of glory. And in that sense, Kat, has this been actually quite a successful week for Rishi Sunak's Conservatives? You know, you've yeah. done a Brexit deal, Boris Johnson is certainly less likely to come back than water. Cricket Photoshop, photo op. You know, he was he was playing cricket badly from the, from the looks of the pictures. But you know, it was whilst whilst the um, privileges committee was was hearing, and he dropped his uh, tax returns as well at the same time. So which made well, he, uh, which he's paid a, a million over the last three years. He's an insanely rich. But, but nothing leader. happened in that in that moment, did it? No, but it was. I think it was. You know, kind of again. You see that there are there is a strategy in place. There is some thought going into burying the bad yeah. news. You know, I mean, like it or loathe it, it's it, it suggests that there is sort of a, a grown up operation in place in Number Ten now. All right. Well, let's come back to it in a second. I want to hear Dave your story, and then as we get all three stories, we can make a judgment on the running order. What leads? What comes second? What's third in the running order? Dave, what's your your story is the fixing, fixing the unfixable. Fixing the unfixable. And it's the story of Baroness Casey Review, her 
363-page deconstruction of the Metropolitan Police and its standards of behaviour and internal culture. And I think the first thing to say is I think we're incredibly fortunate to have her in public life because, you know, she's a rigorous, organised, fearless, almost like the flip side of the person we've just been yeah. speaking about, you know, looking out for the public good. And she really didn't waste the opportunity that had been given to her. You know, she was given permission to go into the Met and examine what was going on, what lay behind their culture. And she went everywhere. And I think one of the you know, cleverest things about it was the way that she um, she and her team used their own data in ways that they they had chosen not to themselves. So, you know, you, there were real new news lines in there in terms of things like, you know, exposing um, the way they use force against black Londoners. And so, you know, you're um, three times more likely to be handcuffed, four and a half times more likely to be tasered if you're if you're black and you encounter the police. So I think things like that were, were really acute. And I think, again, that goes to the fact that although this began with the you know, the abduction and murder of Sarah Everard, she did not limit her inquiries to misogyny and attitudes towards women. And so obviously we, we know that the headline, top line of it is that she found and her team found that they, um, the Met, were institutionally misogynist, racist and, and homophobic. But it's an unpacking of the the culture, the the really poor management and their, the failings of their grievance system and their vetting procedures, their inability to look outward and consider other perspectives and, you know, really um, a, a defensive crouch that they seem to a- adopt at every turn. So there's the, it's pretty devastating, I think. Well, what, what did you make, Dave, of the... Of, among the recommendations reading the report mm. was the disbanding of the team that provides police protection for politicians and diplomats. Yeah. The, the team where the man who had raped and murdered Sarah Everard had worked. What and did the that, serial rapist who... What, what did that tell you about the culture of the police, i.e. the place where there's the greatest level of secrecy was the greatest level of wrongdoing? Is that kind of too glib a reading of it? Why had such terrible things happened there and why of all units was that the one that should yeah. be disbanded? She, she, she calls it a dark corner of the Met and yeah. I, I think that it, you know, if, you were, if you were looking for a, a strand of a story to really sort of um, become obsessed by, you, you could well tell that story of that, of that unit and, and clearly she felt that not only um, were they um, given all the money they wanted with no questions asked, there was this phrase in the report about colouring outside of the lines and you know it was like an expectation that, that that unit didn't have to play by the rules when it came to hotel stays or you know fancy gadgets like you know night vision goggles that didn't work under London streetlights and that type of thing. I thought, I, I, the reason I guess I picked on it is exactly that reason. There's, there's that old thing in there about culture is what happens when no one's looking in, in those particular places. And it, it feels as though there's something in that particular area 
And not just in this regard, but going back years, every time we have a political scandal, we think to ourselves, well, why can't we ask one of the police protection officers? But of course, they are bound by codes of silence that seem kind of stricter and more overbearing than anyone else, and for understandable reasons. But there is definitely something there that still hasn't been fully told, isn't there? I, I, for sure. And there's one thing, you know, we've, we've come to understand that there are some fairly toxic WhatsApp, Telegram, Signal yeah. groups in in the police. But one thing that was, you know, you had to dig deep into the report to discover was the way um, officers in that unit had been taught um, how to evade detection. And, and they used this code word landslide. And so if you thought like this group, this WhatsApp group's been compromised because someone has made a complaint, someone would type landslide in all caps and everyone would leave the group, the group would be abandoned and they'd set up another one. Wow, that was devastating. Alexi, what did you think of this? I thought it was it was a, a a hugely important story. It seems to me, as a non-expert on on police and accountability, that we've had lots of scandals in the recent past where there's been a scandal and the police have apologised and promised to do better. And I think that this report, if I've got it right, has gone further than perhaps others have in not only kind of exposing uh, police wrongdoing in a kind of primary sense, but exposing how after the wrongdoing is exposed, how they still bury their head in the sand, mm. how they apologise on the on the surface but do nothing mm. kind of institutionally. And that surely is the key issue to address sort of going forward. Kat, what did you think of the Louise Casey report? Yeah, I mean, it is night and day with the story I pitched, isn't it? I mean, it's proper heavy, faintly depressing or overtly depressing stuff um, my my kind of key thoughts are so how are we going to resolve this mm. this is not just even a few bad apples this is an entire system that seems rotten to the core who is taking responsibility for it because obviously Cressida Dick has gone um, and arguably a lot of this sort of stuff came up underneath during her her time I heard Sadiq Khan on the radio sort of passing the buck as well I mean it doesn't it feels like we need someone to sort of take charge of it and sort of move on to the next steps of actually you know we were talking about the possibility of it being broken up Mm. which is the sort of extreme sort of um, conclusion if, if there is no kind of resolution before then but it does feel as though we have this deeply depressing report that details a sort of horrible um, culture of the people that we're supposed to put our trust in the most and what are we going to do about it what's going to happen that's my concern it just it sort of feels like a wail into the void and nothing happens so can I have a go being just a bit contrary about it mm. because like you you know you listen to Louise Casey and you think to yourself here's someone who's got who's got rigor and courage right in terms of her convictions the contrary point is this Actually, for all the talk that it's forensic, in some ways it's not forensic enough, in that the way in which it's condemned the Metropolitan Police as institutionally racist, misogynist and and uh, homophobic, is that in some ways the whole organisation is, is said to be uh, a problem. And Mark Rowley's report is, Mark Rowley, the mm. new Met Commissioner, says, no, no, it's not institutional. 
because that sort of says that in every bone of our body, we've got a problem. And might it have been better if Louise Casey had come out and said, look, there are pockets where we have really particular problems. There, that's true for certain groups of serving police officers, officers of a certain age, it may be officers in certain places or conducting certain functions. And is this kind of blanket condemnation actually a problem for the police and the reform of the police? I think actually in the report she she goes out of her way to say of course there are some amazing people serving yeah, and, and, and day-to-day courage. I think uh, and I also think that, that Rowley is, is saying um, I don't want to use the word inst- institutional, um, but I will accept systemic. And I think he, he knows... And what's he, the difference between those two things? Well, I, I think the way, in, in her own words, the way she describes what, what can be seen as institutional um, is that she says that, you know, there's overt discrimination, mistreatment and abuse of, of various uh, groups within the, the force, unfair outcomes for them inside the organisation as a result of biases not only held by individuals but by processes so you look at things like discipline and vetting um, and then it's that thing that you reflect on which is the culture inside the force imbues everything that happens when they face the world you know so that you have unfair outcomes for communities and and that can reveal itself in either under protection of, of women and girls against violence or over policing in when it comes to issues around around race sometimes both and then this this particular culture that the force seems to have that she describes of this attitude of denial and this lack of humility there's this sensation that they are the best in the world and that everything that happens to them they brush off and say well you know we're impervious to to um, to criticism, and anyway, we've already fixed it. So I think I think what's interesting to both of your points is that you perhaps it's one of those um, moments where it's a shocking, scandalous report, but you don't need anyone to resign today. Cat, just on the merits, I know we haven't heard from Alexi yet on his story, but but is your instinct? Given how many police stories we've heard over the years and how many stories that we've heard in this particular uh, register about problems of police culture and the consequences of that. Do you think, look, this is sort of the story of the week, come what may? I do, yeah, I do. It's so important and I just, it's one of those things that I, it it worries me, you know, as a woman, as a mother, it worries me that there are these people, like I say, who, who have powers above and beyond what normal citizens have and and they behave with such disregard and to the point about whether it's sort of you know older members of the force or or, or, you know a kind of culture that perhaps is is sort of maybe dying out um julie etchingham from um itv did did a did a documentary recently and she spoke to people who were female officers who are there at the moment and saying it's getting worse Mm-hmm. Um, and we know from the stuff that we've done on Andrew Tate and others that misogyny right. is not going away. We're not going through some kind of enlightened period. If anything, as a society, we're going backwards. And, and the police, you should think, would be the ones to stop that. 
I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, Kat, thank you. And Dave, I'm going to go to Alexi for what's now going to be an ornamental pitch, given that... Uh, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Kat's already said the story of the week. But Alexi, what's your... I've kind of resigned myself if that's, that's the case anyway. Um, so, so Come on, Hampstead. <laughs> <laughs> the story I chose today, let's start off by saying that it will be blown off the front page by either of these two stories, which is not a <laughs> not great start. Not the most confident start, but give it a go, yeah. But I would gently argue that this show is about what matters most. Yes. So the story I've chosen today is about how in 2023, Britain is going backwards in a really important respect. So this week, Health Equals, which is a campaign group, they did this big study of ONS data on life expectancy for all 650 parliamentary constituencies. And they found that a child born today in Hampstead would live to 88 and a child born today in Glasgow would live to 76. And they also found that 15 out of 20 parliamentary constituencies with the highest life expectancy were in London and the South East. And fine, you can say there have always been disparities, so, so what? But the most shocking thing about the whole report was that they found that this stuff is getting worse. So in the last 15 years, the gap has widened by more than two years. Between Glasgow and Hampstead? And more generally between the, the lowest and the highest. And if you kind of like look at that in the context of big macro improvements in general, lower child mortality, lower tuberculosis, lower infant... All, all, generally, the world is getting better. But in this respect, in this country, it's getting worse. And then I started looking at life expectancy more, more generally... Between 2014 and 2019, life expectancy went down in almost one in five communities for women and one in nine communities for men. And this has all happened since basically 2011. It was all going up till 2011, and then at some point, something switched. And now you're at, you've got a situation where for the richest people in the world, the most privileged, sorry, the richest people in Britain and the most privileged people in Britain... They're talking. They're, they're getting close to that hundred-year life goal. So, so what do you say if I'm if I turn slightly hard-bitten hack on you and say, you, Michael Marmot, the economist and sort of chronicler of inequality, has for some time made this point. I think he, in fact, I think he came to the Tortoise Newsroom once and told that devastating story about if you get on your bicycle at Harrods and you just keep cycling out to the M25, essentially you can see life expectancies fall, you know, on the route of that bicycle ride. This is this is one of those classic news problems, which is it's a chronic problem, right? For some people, it's an acute, it's a chronic problem. It doesn't necessarily make the news. It doesn't lead the news. It's it's a systemic problem, and we don't have anything more to say about it this week than we did last week. Okay, so I think I've got two answers. The, the, the first is that, that it's getting worse. So this, this study found specifically that this year, 
the gap between the rich and uh, the rich and the poor in terms of life expectancy is getting worse. That situation wasn't there a year ago. It wasn't there four years ago. It's something that's been found out this this week. The second thing that I'd say in terms of a hard news angle is that life expectancy is having s- serious implications for public policy already. So the front page of the FT today was all about ministers uh, delaying the extension of the pension age yes. because mm-hmm. of falling life expectancy. Kat, what do you think of that? What do you, in, in the week we're in, what would you do? And, and by the way, just also mention, what would you do about the fact that Alexia's brought a story that itself has come from a campaign group? Yes, I naturally shy away from those kinds of stories because it's, you know... Uh, uh, but are we wrong to do that, Kat? Yes. Are we wrong, to, are we wrong yeah. to do that? Yeah, I, I, I think um, activism and journalism run on parallel courses. They, they can be inspired by one another yeah. and influenced by one another. They're not doing the same job and, mm. and they're not, as but, it were, on the same team. But OK, can, you, can, can, we we want, want, can we just open this can of worms for a second? Yeah. Because the problem with it, of course, is that health equals, did you say? Health equals, yeah. Right. So we sit in the room and we quote health equals verbatim, right, because we presume they've done the work. We don't treat them exactly like another source. We don't go, Dave, and say, they've given us this account of what's happening. We're going to go and run the slide rule over all of their data. We report their findings. But that would definitely be open to us. That's, that's it would be on open us to us, but just journalistically, it. it's not the habit, is it? Mm-hmm. You, you essentially, if Oxfam announces a report or if a think tank announces a report, you report that the but, institution has, has, has come to those findings. But I think you kick the tyres on it. So, yeah. like, if, this, if, if Health Equals had just kind of come up with this data without sourcing it properly, you'd be like, mm, I don't know where this is coming from. But if you go into the report and you can see that it's referencing, like, recently published ONS data and you trust the ONS, then, you know, it seems okay. Oh, that, that's, the, oh, that's the answer, isn't it? Okay, fine, good. All right, sorry, Kat, I, I derailed us. So what do you think of the story itself? Giving me time to think itself? about it. I do think it is important, and I'm reading an, a book, an Adam Tu's book about the financial crash and, and the sort of repercussions of that, and it's interesting that it got worse since 2011. You wonder whether it's a sort of thing about austerity or a thing about the house prices or, you know, kind of... There, there clearly was something if that's when it suddenly started to tick up something economic has happened that, that I think is interesting to potentially try and interrogate because we're going through something that looks like it could be a similar kind of outcome again and so if we're going to learn from the past crises maybe now's the time to do it Well in which case, alright, let's given we've now heard all three stories um, why don't you Give me a story on what you think should lead the news. You know the the rule is you can't pick your own story, even if you think it's brilliant. So, on that basis, Dave, you go first. I think it's a challenging one. This super, I'm probably gonna go for the goodbye to Johnson story. Alexi, well, I know the rule is that you can't pick your own story, but I don't think I would have done anyway. <laughs> <laughs> My choice is the Casey report. Cad, yeah, same. I think the Casey report. It's just so integral to our lives. Well, very good. Fun enough, I woke up this morning thinking to myself, what would I pitch? And I'm so glad that I didn't have to pitch because I would have been really embarrassed. I would have pitched the collapse of Credit Suisse, the largest banking collapse <laughs> in the world. A story, I think, which is not a credit crunch, but a credibility crunch that happened and happened in the boardrooms of a Swiss bank. Swiss banks are not built to collapse, and yet that happened. And I do think it's really consequential. I think it says a lot about power and money, and yet 
may reverberate around the banking system, the economy. But the reason I'm relieved is I wouldn't want it to have been that person that sat there in judgment of the culture of the police forces versus the culture of a Swiss bank. I think you'd end up inevitably saying that the culture of a police force as an expression itself of the law is such a significant story. So I'll tell you how I would run it. I would run, fun enough, as the third story, Boris Johnson and Brexit. And I'm going to be even more kind of dismissive of the story, Kat. <laughs> I would ask you to say, actually, can you flip the lead? Instead of leading on Boris Johnson yesterday appeared in front of the Privilege Committee, I would ask you to lead on the success of the Brexit vote, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. And the marginalisation of the, you know, hardcore, as you call them, the Brexit Spartans. And in another part of Parliament, <laughs> Boris Johnson sought to make his case about lying over Partygate. And the reason I think that is that I do think the watershed is twofold. It's both Brexit politics and the personality cult of Boris Johnson within the Conservative Party. And it's that combination that I think is really significant and puts Rishi Sunak on a different footing. But I think in some ways, both of those things were coming even before this week. Mm -hmm. The Brexit deal, it was clear if you paid attention to it, where it was going to land. And Boris Johnson didn't submit anything of substance that I think will really change the way in which the Privileges Committee sees things generously and uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I would run the I, I'd run the I'd run the inequality story second and I tell you the reason for it is that as much as I'd like to focus attention on inflation and cost of living it's really difficult to get that story to cut through the numbers just wash over you it's quite hard to read what they mean and I think the problem with national numbers and national statistics is that they actually obscure what the story is and the story is acute problems in particular geographies particular communities of people and what that kind of reporting does is focus quite how big the gap is in our society I, I thought that someone and I should have guessed Dave that it would be you would pitch the Casey report and I thought of reasons that I would be dismissive of it. One is it's a report, nothing actually substantial has happened and also her critique of the police having been so comprehensive as to say everything and nothing and in the end neither of those things really hold. The reason why I think it's so significant is that the complaint that's made against journalism, particularly around the police, but also around other institutions, is that we always see a small section, a small segment of a big institution and never see it in the round. This report is exactly that moment it's seen in the round. And I think that she does really effectively take the individual stories, take those cases, and pin them together, both in terms of data and anecdote, and give you an explanation of something, and to your point, institutional, that is not just about people, but about processes. And you can only understand that combination of people and processes to understand the outcomes we've got to. So for that reason, I think I would lead with, exactly as you say, the Casey Report's findings and fixing the unfixable, inequality in Britain, and Brexit and Boris third. That's it for this week's news meeting. Thank you to Kat, to Dave and to Alexi for bringing their stories this week. Thank you all very much. And thank you for listening. Join me next week. I'm going to be joined by three more journalists who are all going to be trying to convince me that they have the story that should lead the news that matters most. In the meantime, please do rate and review the show on whatever podcast app that you use. It really helps other people find it. Again, thanks for listening.
I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts.